0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 484th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Dan Kois, writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate Magazine. And we're going to be talking about the 50 greatest fictional deaths of all time. Joining us on the second segment of the show will be our history history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're very excited. So our first segment here is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is just to give our listeners a little bit of background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some reasons for why you decided to write the article?
1: Today's subject is death, guys, The, the ultimate subject for all of us. The piece is a, we hope, comprehensive list of the 50 greatest fictional deaths in culture um, across movies, books, TV, theater, uh, video games, and more. Uh, the list spans 2,500 years of human culture, um, all the way back to ancient Greece. And, uh, and I tried in creating it to think hard about what makes in fiction of any uh, genre or medium, what makes for a satisfying fictional death? Sometimes they're satisfying because they're so haunting or frightening. Sometimes they're satisfying because they're so deserved. Um, sometimes they're satisfying because they anger us or or make us feel that the story has been resolved, or they kick off a story in an interesting way. And sometimes they they work because they do something that no one else has done with a death scene before. They reinvent the way we think about uh, about a fictional death. All of them also help us as readers or viewers or players or however we're interacting with them think about uh, what role death plays in our own lives and what it's going to be like for us when we finally hit the big reset button.
0: Okay, so I got to tell you that that what you just explained sounds like the most daunting project ever. Um, How many people, is this all on you? Are you having to sift through the entirety of 2,500 years of cultural deaths in order to come up with the list? Have you got some fellow researchers or somebody who's helping you kind of narrow that field? Because that just seems like an overwhelming task to me.
1: Oh, I found it really fun. I guess it is daunting a little bit. Um, But, I mean, the good news is when you are making so foolhardy a claim as (laughs) I'm going to name the 50 best fictional deaths, you have, I think, have sort of made yourself immune to one basic, uh, you know, critique, which is how did you leave off X? The answer always is, well, we only have 50 and an infinite number of, of, uh, cultural products have been created in the last 2,500 years. So of course I left your favorite one off. Um, to, to answer the question. Uh, this was a, this was a full team effort at slate, the magazine that I work at, um, over, that took us about two years. Um, and I, we weren't all working on it nonstop for those two years, but from conception to publication, it was about a two year process. And I did have a lot of help, um, I had I put out a call to everyone I work with at the magazine, from editorial employees, to people who work on our team to people you know who sell the ads, to nominate and suggest uh, fictional deaths that have been really important to them that have really stuck with them. Um, I also reached out to a lot of cultural figures, particularly cultural figures, who are responsible for some important or interesting death scenes to ask them, well, what are the scenes that have really meant a lot to you? So I got, you know, David Simon who created the wire to tell me about the death scene that meant the most to him. And Stephen King to tell me about the death scene that meant the most to him that also informed the choices that I was making. And, you know, at the peak of our consideration of this question, uh, we had a, a Google spreadsheet going that had, I think, about 250 to 300 uh, possible options, um, suggestions from me and from many of the people that I worked with. Um, And then that was when it became a little bit daunting because then it it became my job to narrow it down to a list of 50 that would feel representative and interesting and diverse and, and would show all the different things that a death scene can do while also showing all the different kinds of creators and media in which they've been employed. Um, and I wanted to make sure that we had stuff from antiquity, I wanted to make sure we had stuff from the early days of the novel. I wanted to make sure we had Shakespeare. I wanted to make sure we had very contemporary things. And I also wanted to make sure we had stuff that would really surprise people and make people laugh. Um, which is why, uh, for example, The Death of Pac-Man is on the list. That was a suggestion (laughs) from a fellow staffer at Slate, Marissa Martinelli. Um, And I loved it as soon as she suggested it because, because A, I think it, as it did you, makes people laugh when they see it and read it, but it's also right. It's an iconic and indelible death scene, and one that as soon as you say it to anyone basically over the age of 35 – Uh, The sound effect immediately echoes in their head, and they can immediately envision what that looks and sounds like.
0: All right. I only have about a minute and a half left for this segment, so I'm going to hopefully give you a question that you can answer in that time. It's always seemed to me that part of the fun of these kinds of lists is having people react and discuss the things that didn't show up. Um, I know that there's some feedback that that comes back to you um, on the online version of your magazine. Um, Has there been, you know, one particular thing that popped up over and over again? You know, people, multiple people saying, how could you possibly leave off X?
1: There were so many. And um, in fact, there were so many that I published a follow up piece about the responses and about all the ones that people were angry that we left off um the the one that i think got the most votes and for which the votes were the most angry uh were alan rickman as hans gruber oh. in die hard uh an all-time great villain death um a great scene a great shot and one with a great backstory as you'll recall right. he uh, it plummets off the top of nakatomi tower Um, Apparently, when shooting that scene, uh, the director of the film told Alan Rickman, all right, we're going to count to three, and then we're going to let you go. And then he went one and then he let him go and that's why Hans Gruber looks so surprised as he falls off <laughs> Naachelli Plaza
0: <laughs> yes I do remember that and and uh, I even saw an interview with Rickman where he was you could he still had that face you know and it was 20 years later or whatever <laughs> <laughs> still,
1: still can't believe they
0: did that too. right <laughs> exactly at any rate we have so much more to talk about so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show this is ROI on KLA San Ambrose
2: University when FM. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called LocalsLoveUs.com, or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. LocalsLoveUs.com.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest today is Dan Coyce, writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate Magazine, and we're talking about his article, The 50 Greatest Fictional Deaths of All Time. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off?
3: All right. Dan, What uh, I read your article, and... Uh, although I was disappointed that none of Longmire's uh, dead people showed up on the list, but that's, that's my own personal preference. What is your favorite satisfying death on the list of 50?
1: Oh, man, starting with the hardest question. I, I would like to point to two that, uh, that have been very personally meaningful to me in my uh, life as a reader and, and viewer and watcher. Um, and one is uh, Beth March. In Little Women, um, in part because you know, as I write in the piece, that scene was written by Louisa May Alcott as a kind of corrective to what she had experienced in her own life. Her own sister had died. You know, as as I'm sure all of you know, many of the events of Little Women are really based on on Louisa May Alcott's own childhood. Um, her own sister had died, um, but had not had the kind of "quote unquote" good death. That Beth has, uh, where she, where her her saintly selfless life is matched by the her, the saintly selfless end in her lying comfortably in bed and having one last moment with each of her beloved sisters. Um, Alcott's sister suffered terribly, and um, and and it was very traumatic for all of them. And Alcott, I think, you know, wanted the death that she wrote to be a kind of rebuttal to the ways that fictional characters often ended in those days. But what she ended up creating, I think, is a kind of a kind of vision of what a good death can be that for good and for ill influenced the way we have thought about death ever since. Very few of us will ever live up to that kind of example. Um, And yet it is the the kind of example we all see when we think, well, how do I want to go? I want to go painlessly smiling, mirroring fire surrounded by my loved ones with the chance to say one final beautiful thing to the people who mean the most to me, um, and then the other one I want to highlight is um, uh, is from you know about 140 years later. Uh, it's the death of Thelma and Louise in Thelma and Louise, um, uh, uh, Kelly Curry's screenplay um, and Ridley Scott's movie from 1991. Um, I found that one really satisfying because that movie I thought as I was watching it, uh, you know, back in 1991, I was 16 when I saw it. It seemed to me that it was setting up an impossible problem, which is that we are cheering for these two women, these two outlaws, um, as they are are getting revenge for all the slights that they have suffered, both small and large, throughout their lives as women in a very particular social-political context. And we're cheering for them, but yet we know there's no way that a Hollywood movie could ever let them get away with it, right? That's our experience, (laughs) certainly at that time with the way that this kind of movie uh, the kind of this kind of revenge movie ends, it always ends unhappily. Um, And also, you know, realistically, there's no way you could write a version of this in which they get away with it. That would be dramatically satisfying because it's not, that's not the way things work in real life. They left too many clues. The cops are too smart. Harvey Keitel's cop in particular, and they're not going to get away with it. And so the ending that Callie Curry wrote of them holding hands and saying, let's keep going, and then driving off the, the edge of the, the Galdang Grand Canyon, um, I found shocking and remarkable when I saw it, and I still find a, a kind of perfect moment of, of writerly and filming inspiration, because it is the right and true ending for this story, both dramatically and realistically, but it also so unexpectedly feels inspirational to us, the viewers, because we never see them fall. We never see them plummet to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And so the last image we see of them still in midair, still holding hands, it's as if their journey gets to go on forever, way out into the ether. And we can live with them there. We don't have to see what the ending is going to be.
0: All right. Ed, do you have a question?
3: Yeah. Um, Dan, on this list, are there any um, movies or books that are the end of the series where there might be several books um where at the end of the first second third volume whatever that we don't know for sure if the bad guy is going to survive or not where there's this ambiguity and eventually at the end that we find out that he finally got what he had coming to him
1: yeah, well, there's a, a, a there's a prototypical one, and then there's one that didn't work out exactly how the creator hoped. Um, the one of the archetypes that I think of that kind of ending is uh, Lord of the Rings, um, and and the fate of the character of Gollum, who's not the villain of the uh, of the story officially. Officially, officially that's Sauron, um, the Great Eye, but. But really, I think for readers and then for viewers later of the movies, he was the, the, the quote-unquote bad guy we cared the most about, the most compelling of all the villains in this story. And we follow him as he plots and schemes and pretends and fights for the ring. And then in one fell swoop, uh, Tolkien gives him the ending he deserves falling into the fires of Mount Doom along with the ring. And also just happens to end the story, give the story the happy ending that we require uh, with one perfect action. And, um, and I love that as a great, great, great villain ending. It gives me everything I want out of that. He has one last moment where we think he might win. He bites Frodo's finger off and holds in his hands, the ring, uh, and he gets to experience that moment of triumph, um, and then instantly sinks into the lava and and dies. Um, and then the example I'd give for one where it didn't quite work out the way the creator hoped was, is Sherlock Holmes um, in Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, story, um, uh, "The Final Problem" uh, from eighteen ninety three. He you know he'd been writing Sherlock Holmes for years, and he was sick of him. He was he like so many creators of extremely popular things was sick of the thing he made popular and only wanted to be taken seriously as an artist um and so he w- decided i'm going to kill him i'm killing sherlock holmes and so watson learns at the end of this story that uh that holmes plummeted over Reichenbach falls while fighting with moriarty and readers rebelled readers simply would not accept that as an answer and they harangued Arthur Conan Doyle for a decade made his life a living hell until he resurrected Sherlock Holmes and brought him back. And it was a cautionary tale that uh, the creators of truly uber popular media have had to have had to follow forever after. If you invent a character as popular as Sherlock Holmes, he no longer fully belongs to you. Uh, he belongs to the fans as much he belongs as he belongs to you, and you're going to have to deal with that fact.
0: Um, Dan, this is Jay, and and I'm curious. I've done some things like this, nothing nothing on this scale, I I might add, but I've done some things like this and other kinds of research, and what I found is there's always something that pops up that I had no idea was going to happen or I had no idea that it was going to go in that direction. So I'm wondering with this, were there... Anything, anything that made that top 50 list that you simply didn't expect that came out of the complete blue that that hadn't been even remotely on your radar um, that, that still, you know, once you looked at it, you went, oh, yeah, obviously this needs to be here.
1: Yeah, there were a lot like that. Um, one that I would point out just because I was just a little bit too young to experience it when it happened um, is uh, the death of Henry Blake in M.A.S.H. Um, which happened in 1975, and um, that was a pretty signal moment for television as a medium. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys know, and many of your listeners know, you know that the the series finale of MASH, for years and years and years, was the high water mark of. American television viewing but you know that an insane something like 80 or 85 percent of American televisions were tuned to that show and it was a cultural phenomenon one of the reasons it was a phenomenon was because of this death which had occurred a few seasons before Um, in the context of a comedy which mash sometimes we forget was a very funny comedy the idea that you could kill off a character unexpectedly um, and erase him from the series uh, was shocking to viewers. It enraged viewers, but it also made the show the kind of forever appointment must watch television that it became and and forever after was. Um, and what I found when we included it in the list, and we also included a little piece, which was simply a, um, uh, an interview with uh, the, one of the producers of Mash, Gene Reynolds, about the decisions that went into how they wrote the, the scene of uh, of the announcement of Henry Blake's death, um, it was instantly clear that for a lot of readers of this piece, that was the one that they remembered and that they connected with, and that they were sharing, for example, on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, this the one uh, that was the accompanying piece that got read the most by a factor of like twenty, um, and uh, people wanted to relive that moment wanted to talk about where they were when they saw it how angry it made them how sad it made them how shocked they were uh and it really was i think for a, a, an entire generation of tv viewers an enormous uh an enormous thing that changed the way they viewed what television could do and it wasn't on my radar at all um because i, because I had maybe heard about it once from my mom but i'd never thought about it again
0: Yeah, and if I remember correctly, they hadn't told McLean-Stevenson how it was going to happen either, and he was very angry at the way that was They hadn't told anyone. Yeah, Yeah, so I mean...
1: They didn't tell anyone in the cast, and they handed out script pages after they filmed his farewell scene, and then they had a party. Then they told all the rest of the cast, oh, we've got one more scene, here it is, let's shoot it. And and McLean-Stevenson was still on set when they did that, and was, yes, so angry that they had done that to him, a thing that they had not told him they were going to do. And it was in a way a, an incredible artistic decision. It was also a canny business decision. Yeah, I think the creators of the show were not thrilled that McLean Stevenson wanted off and they didn't want to give him the option of coming back on. And they want to just fire a warning shot to all their other stars. If you guys tell us, you know, Alan Alda or whoever that you want to leave the show, we could do this to you, too.
3: <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that uh, after that episode was filmed, uh, that McLean Stevenson made the observation that uh, he thought people were in love with him um, right. and that that popularity would follow him. But what he didn't realize was that people really were in love with Henry Blake. right.
0: Yeah, and it, that it's
3: gets a, confusing. A, a lesson
0: that so many TV
1: actors have had to learn. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to Hollywood.
3: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Rick, do you have another question? Yeah, I do. I'm going to follow up on my uh,
3: my initial question. Dan, What uh, I assume you may or may not have had 50 deaths in mind, but what didn't make the list that you really thought should have made the list?
1: Whew, I mean, we have this incredible list of 250 almost all of which i felt like i could make a real case for so you know we don't have a star wars death for example we don't have a harry potter death um and and those were ones that people really noticed but those weren't the ones that meant the most to me and that i was the most upset about but you know i was really sad that i just didn't have room in this for more funny deaths um, and that's a category that I think people don't think about a lot, but that is very near and dear to my heart, whether they're deaths that occur in comedies and are simply meant to be, you know, dark humor or they're deaths that that happen in dramas that are meant to be shocking um, and absurd. I really love deaths that uh, that poke a little bit of fun at the the way that death is often treated in fiction with so much you know, it is a far, far better thing. I do gravitas. And so a death like, um, uh, uh, Rosalind in LA law. I don't know if you guys remember this from 1991. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, a, an attorney, um, at the firm a very, uh, prominent character, uh, who in totally unexpected moment in the middle of a conversation with another character, the elevator doors open behind her. She steps into the elevator, the car isn't there, and she instantly points to her death. um, why did David Kelly do that? Why did that happen? People couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. This was one that that I did remember from watching the show when it happened. I remember screaming out loud when that happened. Um, and there were a number of deaths like that. Uh, you know, Frank Grimes on uh, in the Simpsons. Uh, the episode of the Simpsons in which uh, a fellow employee at the nuclear power plant becomes obsessed with Homer uh, and eventually um, dies in stupid comic fashion. Um, Deaths like that really tickle me and I think are a great corrective to the kind of uh, terror and fear and sadness with which death is often approached um, in fictional stuff. And so I, I I was happy I got to include one of the greatest of these, um, which is a a character from a very, a very third tier Cone brothers movie named Wheezy Joe, um, but I was sad
0: I didn't get a chance to include more. Okay. Ed, you're going to get the last question.
3: Okay, Jay. Um, Dan, uh, who made the final decision, and was this, and what was exactly was that process, uh, process? Did this all just land on your desk in a pile, and and you picked fifty, or was there a larger larger group of say half a dozen, and and somehow by consensus you arrived at the final list?
1: It was totally me, and that was a a result of the experiences I've had in, in previous processes, making lists like this, where we did leave the final decision up to a large group. And I found it totally maddening, Um, you know, that simply because you could and should argue about these things forever. The arguing is the fun of it. And the fact that we were spending all our arguing time in a meeting before this thing even got published instead of arguing in public about it afterwards with our readers, the way we should be, um, drove me nuts. It also took forever and made me less excited about the list at the end. So for this one, I don't know how my superiors felt about it. Uh, my editor at slate or the editor in chief at slate, um, they, uh, they didn't yell at me. So I think they thought it was fine, but I just decided I'm not going to open this up for debate. I'm going to take people's suggestions. I'm going to take contributions. I'm going to thank them for them. And then I'm making this decision and putting my name on it. And so when people yell at me, I will yell back at them on Twitter or in the comments uh, and I'm going to own it. And I found that a much more satisfying way to make what is this, to make this kind of, declaration one that is essentially by definition indefensible um and semi-frivolous yet fun to argue about plus you're still employed so that's a good
0: note there you are that's
1: true they haven't they haven't fired me yet
0: (laughs) dan we always make sure that the guest gets the last word so uh why do you think knowing about the cultural impact of great literary death scenes is relevant in today's world
1: i don't maybe i am a particularly uh uh self-conscious or grave guy but i think not infrequently about how it is i'm gonna go out um whether i'm gonna have one of those stepping into an elevator shaft deaths or one of those Beth march deaths um whether i'll uh, go nobly or ignobly almost certainly the latter um And it's a a frightening thing to think about. And I tend to think of all of the fictional deaths that we experience in our reading and viewing lives as little tiny practice runs for the the real deaths we are going to have to experience of loved ones and eventually of ourselves. And I think it's valuable to think through what these mean, to think through how they affect other characters in the story and how they affect us, and then to... To have that, you know, when, the, when the, the clock ticks down to zero. I don't know, you know, if I get hit by a train or something, I probably won't have a lot of time to think, well, do I want to Beth March this one or do I want to tell them Louise this one? But I still think it's valuable to give a little bit of framing and context to the lives we lead and their inevitable ends.
0: All right. Well. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1
2: FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This
0: concludes our 484th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp-Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dan Koyce, writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate Magazine. And we've been talking about his article, The 50 Greatest Fictional Deaths of All Time. Our history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb: Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.